Welcome to another edition of the Ian Dale Political Books podcast in association with politicos.co.uk. Well, um, with me today, I have got somebody I've known for donkey's years. We agree on virtually nothing, but somehow have developed quite a good friendship. At least I think we have. Um, Yasmin Alibi-Brown is her name. You'll know her from her uh, column in The Independent, uh, frequent appearances on television, although she'll tell you not frequent enough, no doubt. But she's written a, a new book called Exotic England, The Making of a Curious Nation. Um, Yasmin, what drove you to write the book? I think two reasons. And yes, you are one of my dear friends, oddly. It's uh, going to be so cosy, isn't it? <laughs> no, no, no. Um, hi, Tori, close friend. Um, better friend than some of my Labour friends, I can well, tell you. Um, learn a lesson from that. I know. Um, the political reason was obviously, uh, you know, the last two or three years, the rise of UKIP, EDL, and the fact that having lived now in England for more than uh, 40 years, I think it's been since I came from Uganda, um, and the fact that 93% of migrants live in England, not in the rest of the United Kingdom, made me think, well, two things. There's something about England that brings us here, and this is quite topical, you might say, and in spite of the difficulties, and there are many, we grow to love this country because there's something about England which is extraordinary. And I thought the UKIP message, you know, the Little England message, is so wrong because those who are giving it really don't know the nation, don't know this country. Because even before it was England, even as its consciousness as a nation um, or an entity was developing, it was looking out. It has never been looking and uh, looking in, in Islander. Mm. Englanders are looking out Islanders. And if you think about it, Shakespeare named his first theatre the Globe. What did that tell you about the English consciousness already? Now, of course, there was exploitation and there was all kinds of bad stuff done. But I think the story is much more interesting than simply one of exploitation. And, and in a way, the book is a bit of a celebration of England and Englishness, which I think some of your critics, maybe on the right, might be quite surprised by. Yes, but I, it, they shouldn't be, because something like 15 years ago... I wrote a, 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 a column in the New Statesman asking why can't the English be English when everybody else can be mm. who they say they are? Why is there this terrible fear and gloom-mongering when the English want to claim their ethnic or historical identity? So I've been thinking about it for a long time. But yes, this is a celebration in the sense that one hopes England isn't going to be um, to withdraw from this fantastic story and its own porosity. It has been a porous, open, absorbing um, uh, nation for a, since the 16th century, actually. And it would be a terrible shame if in the present climate and whatever's happening now, that was somehow lost. Let me give you just one fact. It and this fact tells you quite a lot. This didn't happen anywhere else in Europe. 
1565, I think it was, somebody called George Best wrote a panic pamphlet saying, too many English women are taking up with black men and having dark-skinned children. I mean, think about that. This is the 16th century. The one from 50 years ago. It never happened anywhere else. They say everything, everything's um, cyclical. <laughs> yes. Um, I mean, that's quite interesting because people imagine that people who are non-white really only came to this country in the, in the 20th century. But of course, I mean, Queen Victoria famously had in her court, well, I think it was a very senior of her courts from India, wasn't he? Yes, I think she, he was her closest confidant and... Um, she taught herself Hindustani, and they used to write letters to each other in Hindustani, so the courtiers and politicians wouldn't understand. They, they, they were very, very close. But way before that even, Elizabeth I was so enraptured by the Ottoman um, Empire, and wanted one, obviously, and of course wanted to get up the nose of the Catholic nations, but she would send her tailors to Istanbul to copy the fashions. She had their ambassadors and their, their oligarchs who came to visit uh, painted in Hyde Park and she got Londoners to come out with bells and torches to welcome them. So the story is extraordinary. Let me tell you one, this is amazing. The first Indian takeaway in this country was started by a working class English woman called Hannah Glass who took off and went off to India on an adventure in the 17th century. Said she was attacked by a tiger, got into, uh, embroiled in the Franco, in Anglo-French Anglo War, and then in the war with Mysore, with Tipu Sultan, when the British were going for his lands. She was imprisoned by the, the Mysoreans. She learned Indian cooking. Indian languages. When they released her, she came here and started the first Indian takeaway from her home, because there were already people coming back from the east who had whose palates had changed and they wanted spicy food. Mm. So I'm just so en enthralled by this story. And sort of Indian food now has almost been just adopted as an English national dish. Robin Cook said chicken korma was the most popular, and I think it is actually. If you look at all the surveys, it's sort of the most popular. Yeah. I can't stand it personally, but uh, you do like my food. I do like your food. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not a fan of sort of Indian food in general. At least I've one you If I go to an if I go to an Indian restaurant, I always have the same thing because <laughs> I know I'm going to like uh, it. It's not. It's not <laughs> just food. Architecture. You know, uh, the St Paul's. Christopher Wren described that architecture as Indo-Saracenic, as refined by Christians. And there are two Indian palaces about 10 miles from where Jeremy Clarkson lives. Um, yes, beautiful, yeah, right. beautiful, beautiful yeah. Indian palaces. And it's every, if once you start looking, you know, the other extraordinary story, father of Kim Philby, I blame Saudi Arabia, absolutely, for the, you know, the evil of jihadism, ISIS, all of that. Well, Kim Philby's father, Jack Sinjin Philby, went to Arabia, learned Arabic, became a Muslim, helped create Saudi Arabia, and then wrote these books on the glories of Wahhabi Islam. 
So there's a lot to answer. There's a lot to answer for. <laughs> now you should not be surprised that Kim turned out to be the way he was. So it is a celebration. It's a homage, and it's a it's a deeply felt homage because you know my daughter now is half English. My ch grandchildren are half English, and it is extraordinary how that is not even a remarkable thing in England. You see, that's quite interesting. You describe your daughter as half English. I would describe her as wholly English. No, she was born she's half of me. Well, what, yes, but what do you describe yourself as? Well, you've you've lived virtually all your life in this country. Yeah, but I was, I'm a Ugandan nation. I'm part African. I'm part Indian. Um, so you don't consider yourself English? And I do consider myself British. And in the book, it's very, very funny because I interviewed a lot of very interesting people in the book. And Billy Bragg at one point said to me, why don't you just say you are English? Because you are. Well, <laughs> well, it's about the only thing I've ever agreed with Billy Bragg on, apart from his support for West Ham. But uh... yeah, but uh, you know, it, uh, but I am very comfortable. Um, uh, be I, I do feel I do deeply feel a Londoner. Mm. I really feel this is my home. Um, but Englishness has a history to it, and I don't want to grab it. Uh, you know, I hate it when you know, odd balls suddenly start claiming an Indianness that isn't really part of their heritage. I think it's fine. Um, that why, why is it though that a lot of people who are immigrants to this country say that, and I've had them on my radio show say this, they say, yeah, I'm British, but I'm not English, even though I live in England. And that there is still, even now, and I think we have reclaimed the word English to an extent, but there's still this sort of idea that it's a word that's associated with people on the far right. And I, I don't understand how we've allowed that to happen. I, as I say, I think in the last 20 years, it's less so, but there's still part of that there, isn't there? Yes, and it is because, you know, the EDL and so on use the flag in uh, unpleasant ways. But, you know, I, I've ha I get correspondence from some of these guys, extreme right-wing racists, and there's a story in here where one of them kept saying to me, you won't have coffee with me because you're a coward. And he sent the most vile emails to me uh, for a long time, so I had coffee with him. <laughs> Um, for one hour and I said he could pay for his own and I would pay for mine and he carried on really being revolting not to your face yes nicely dressed but why on earth would you do that because I just wanted to stop this correspondence he's never stopped writing and you know you're drawn towards it you think you're going to delete it but there's something weird in the human mind no, but I suspect what subconsciously you thought you could win him round maybe maybe Anyway, I didn't win him round, but as I was leaving, <laughs> he grabbed my arm and I, had, I was wearing my gold Indian bangles for some reason, I can't remember. And he said, oh, I like those bracelets. Where are they from? And I just laughed. I said, oh my goodness, even you, even you cannot resist the glitter of the Orient, can you? <laughs> <laughs> what do you think drives people like that? Because I, mean, I think it is a bit like this argument we're having about migrants at the moment, where if you say, oh, the blacks or the Asians, you, you put everybody into a particular group and it sort of dehumanises them. Whereas if you, people say, yeah, well, I don't, want, I don't want those blacks over here, but oh, my neighbour, I get on well with it, he's a nice bloke. It's, way, it's like we all say we hate the French, but individually we quite like them. 
And it, it is this sort of dehumanising element. We've seen it with the language that certain politicians, David Cameron, has been using sort of swarms and Philip Hammond saying marauding. Now, I don't believe either of them are, are racist. I don't believe they even meant it in the way that it's been interpreted by some people. But it, it is this whole thing that, as a society, we can't distinguish between the individual and the group. Yeah, and, and, and never think about how you would feel how actually think about Zimbabwe yeah when all this rhetoric about white people was going on how did people in this country feel because these were there mm. there was there were connections there they felt wounded frightened insulted by these these kinds of expressions of hatred and here we are now legitimizing such things when it comes to black people and Asian people and it's just plain wrong but the good story again and you've kind of touched on it what we are very good at in this country, and that is across Britain actually, not just in England, is at levels of intimacy, friendship, love, marriage, um, neighbor, you know, neighborly relations, um, work uh, colleagues. There is no nation which is so naturally integrated. I mean, you look around, anyway, it's not only in the cities. Increasingly, you find it everywhere. You know, the fact that um, um, Kate, uh, Prince William's wife, on, for their wedding, invited the local Indian uh, newspaper shop owner, said something to you about how easy, it's just a relationship. But the problem is that um, when it comes to policy, when it comes to actually addressing the racism that still goes on, it's cyclical. It got better, it's worse again. None of our politicians are brave enough to address it because I think they're frightened of losing votes. If people were spoken to about, not just, I don't think it works to say, give them just the economic argument, which is one reason why I've written the book. You say to people, look, they've brought this much money into this country. That's not going to change their attitudes towards mm. migrants. But you say to them, look, think about, you know, think about your neighborhood. Think about who are the shopkeepers, how do you feel about them, and then you, they begin to change. Isn't this though where we have a divided country, where we have metropolitan areas where people don't actually walk down the street and think about skin colour, you just sort of see lots of people and it's just natural. Whereas you go to a market town in the middle of Norfolk and if a black man walks down the street, you stare. And I've done it myself. I mean, when I, I remember when I was a candidate in, in Norfolk, sort of in Cromer, and there, there was a black guy walked down, so you just never saw somebody with non-white skin in that area. So I think that it's, it is a divided country where people who don't live in a metropolitan area or big city have very different views. Uh, and because people fear what they don't know. And if you, if you don't know anybody who comes from another country, um, if you've not got any friends, it doesn't. Uh, skin colour is almost irrelevant here because, <coughs> of course, we've now got all the Eastern European immigration, so it applies to them as well. Um, I think that is actually one of the biggest dividing factors in this country now that people in some areas just don't ever meet anyone from a different <coughs> place. Well, research shows that racism is highest where there are fewest people of colour. Mm. Um, and that's always been the case, you know, throughout the, the, the decades. 
But I went to an amazing festival on Saturday where I was speaking. It's a music festival. Um, and, down uh, with the kids. Down with the kids. And they had me speaking about quite serious subjects in um, um, Oxfordshire. And there must have been 5,000 people there, you know, and tents and so on. And I was astonished how mixed it was. More mixed than I've ever seen anywhere outside London. Now, you maybe there were Londoners, I don't know, no. I can't tell you, but it kind of really reassured me that even in these hard times, it was absolutely a tapestry of, you know, the, the wonder of all these cultures and peoples getting on um, together, which is not to say we don't have problems. I think Muslim separatism is a serious problem and it's a relatively new problem. Um, the fact that we do have terrorism, the fact that we have, even at universities, young Muslim women refusing to sit with other women or with men, and that creates its own new anxieties, I think, just when you think we've kind of come to a new place. These anxieties come back up, and sometimes it's not the fault of white people who feel incredibly anxious about what's happening. And sometimes, like, you know, the Metropolitan story, I was spat at, okay, seven months ago, on a number nine bus on High Street, Kensington, by a white woman in her 50s who looked quite well dressed, you know, Marks and Spencer's smart clothes. She didn't know who I was. She just thought I was a packy. And the awful thing was nobody said anything. This was in London. So I just can't imagine that happening. I mean, it just, it was so, it was so, it wasn't shocking. It was just so hurtful, you know. Who could be more integrated than, than I am? But what this woman saw was a brown-skinned woman. I promise I wasn't wearing a job or a book. <laughs> well, I know you wouldn't do that. <laughs> Having written a book called Refusing the Veil. <laughs> um, do you think that you've been sort of typecast by the media and that you, you're only ever invited on media programmes to talk about one issue? And therefore, you get people who say, well, there she is, banging on about Muslims or banging on about race again. Can't she talk about anything else? Yeah, <coughs> but it happens. You know, it happens to women are always asked to talk about certain range of subjects. It's changed a lot. I've been writing this column for The Independent now for 17 years, and I write about everything. Um, and so slowly, slowly, but not nearly enough, um, you know, I am allowed to speak about you know the bigger politics, um, about holidays, about fashion, and so on. But yes, inevitably, like I was away in Italy last week for three days, and I had four calls. Um, something had happened. You know, some Muslim issue had broken up, up, and so they all wanted me on, and and I didn't even reply because I just thought. So much is happening. Why aren't you ringing me up about the Labour Party, for example? You know, why aren't you talking? Why is the Labour Party leader's election almost totally now white? Because the four contestants exactly, are white. Exactly, but we <laughs> might talk to people who are not white and see 
who are you supporting and why? And do you feel anybody's taking seriously the issues of increased real racism since the immigration debate has got really ugly? Um, but I'm not going to complain, Ian, because I also know how lucky I am. You know, I'm really lucky that I've survived, that I do have a presence, and, and actually some respect even from Tory politicians, um, that, you know, I was asked to be on the, this key Question Time programme after the leaders' debate, um, you know, that bit by, you scratch away, but I'm never going to forget how this country allowed my talents to flourish. It'll always be difficult if you're an outsider, and you will always be an outsider if, you're, if you come from somewhere else. But I am lucky too. Maybe I'm getting old and mellow. Well, we all are. <laughs> um, you started editing this series of books for Bite Back um, called Provocations. And it's a really good reception, the first um, series of books. Why, why do you think uh, sort of polemical writing is still important? Um, we are told in the West that one of the deep values of the West is freedom of expression. But actually it's not true. Um, there are so many conversations that are curtailed, uh, silenced, controlled, disallowed in the freest of nations, including the United States. So there's a myth of freedom of expression and free speech. And then there's the reality that is that often debates are one-sided, um, uh, you know, other very, very, very many times important points of view are, are kind of marginalized, pushed to the edges. And I thought, why not have some short books which argue against the kind of herd mentality or the way, in general, the media covers things or tells us how to think? And immigration is a, is a big one. You know, there's only one way now to think about immigration, which is it's a very serious problem. Um, but other issues too, you know, uh, that feminism has arrived or men are still the most powerful people um, in the world um, and that that will never change. All of these are true, but also there is a counter-argument that needs to be made to get a proper picture of what's going on. So I thought, why not? Uh, although the, uh, one of the things that really got to me was everybody thought all Muslim women want to cover up you know, and that they're going in that, that direction. Um, so I wanted to do these books, which would be intelligently written, so they aren't kind of, you know, the, the, some of the columnists we have who are just being nasty. That's not what the purpose of the book is at all. And one or two of them are quite surprising. In Calvin McKenzie's book on immigration, people would expect him to be very anti-immigration, au contraire. Yes, and that was a really important book to write. And it's actually written with feeling and with evidence. Um, another surprising book for most people who are so in love with the royal family was this extraordinary book written by Joan Smith, the author and journalist, questioning the whole system, the, the, the monarchy itself. You know, not saying, oh, it's Charles, or you know, we don't like these bits about them, but actually questioning the system, which is more popular than it's ever been and it's just the time when you should be mm. questioning that system. Um, yes, I had to suck hard at publishing that one. 
Yes, I know, <laughs> I know. Um, so, and it's been very, very interesting because I've been doing a lot of book festivals um, this summer. And people are genuinely surprised when you say Kelvin McKenzie defends migration. Or I, a Muslim woman, a drink wine and don't lie about it. But actually, not only do I not cover up, but my mother did it, you know. Um, so I think they're smashing and they're beautifully published and they're, they're kind of so, they do make people rethink their views. I'm convinced of that. Well, that's more than that. Um, you do a one-woman show as well, which I saw um, several years ago. And I think people would see a very different side of you if they saw that. I mean, it's all about your sort of history in Uganda, isn't it? Yes. I do. The one-woman show, which was directed by the Royal Shakespeare Company, was, yes, it's a deeply personal piece about growing up in Uganda, which was racially divided, about Asians and their racism towards blacks, um, about my father and his... In, his his intolerance, his extreme intolerance, um, and why perhaps I am as obsessed about racial equality as I am. Um, it's actually quite an emotion. It's a long time ago I saw it, but I c it, it didn't help that just before I came into the theatre, I'd heard my godmother had died. But I, was, it, I got very emotional during it. There were sort of some quite emotional parts to it. Well, I can't. I, I haven't done it for a couple of years now, but I could never do it without crying. Um, it is a very emotional piece. And I remember once doing it um, um, at um, uh, a weekend gathering, which had rather an alarming number of bankers there. And at the end, which is about my father and my non-relationship with him when he died, they were sobbing. Mm -hmm. And afterwards... Bankers have hearts too. Yes, I know. No, 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 no. <laughs> what I was going to say is, so I made bankers cry, <laughs> which is a very good moment. But actually, a lot of them said they had terribly bad relationships with their dads, mm. which I never would have expected to hear. Families are weird things, aren't they? And that every every family is so different. And I sort of look look back at my family and think um, I was so lucky because I always had a good relationship with my parents, good relationship with my sisters. None of these angsts that virtually all my friends have had, sort of terrible relationship breakdowns with really close family members. Um, and in a sense, every single family has got a story to tell. Just they don't do it as a one-woman show. No, and they've got secrets and lies. I mean, yeah. quite a lot of people from my community and my family got very upset that I did the show because, of course, the the, th the thing that we are all taught, whoever we are, is you don't wash your dirty linen in public. And this is even stronger within Asian and Arab communities. Uh, but I'm glad I did it, and I'm glad um, that... You know, it, I mean, it was a beautiful, beautiful thing that uh, the director sort of uh, created with me, um, and it was probably the best thing I've ever done. No, I, I can see that because I mean, it was one of those things where I went because I'm a friend of yours. Did I was I looking forward to Yasmin Alabine Brown one woman show, which I wasn't, I didn't know what to expect. In all honesty. I didn't want to go because my grand, my godmother was ill, and as I said, she she died. And I just thought it's the most wonderful thing. Have you ever have you done it at the Edinburgh Festival? Yes. Because I, I imagine did, that's the sort of thing. Yes, that goes I did it twice really well actually. There. I did it twice up in Edinburgh, 
I took it to Europe, I took it to India, um, and yeah, it was a fantastic thing. And it also was important to remind people of, of history, you know, the reason why we came here as Uganda nations. Um, you know, nobody chooses to leave their homelands mm. easily. Um, and to get people to understand the politics behind the, the thing and also how Shakespeare understood. The, um, a lot of it was about Shakespeare, you know, um, the, the Othello figure who belongs and doesn't belong, um, always an outsider, um, the whole Shylock figure. So there was so much in Shakespeare where th there was an understanding mm. already of, um, you know, the, when, when the British, were, and was the English largely first, who went out to the world, the world was going to follow them back. I mean, Shakespeare understood that. And I wish our politicians understood that a bit more. What do you read? What are you going to read on holiday this year? I'm reading, um, what am I reading? Um, I'm reading a very, very good book by Gavin Francis, who's a doctor, uh, a Scottish doctor, who's written the most amazing book on, on the human body. But it's, it's like the best travel book through the human body and he tells these amazing stories um, about his life as a GP and about people and their heads and their psyches and um, it's, a, it's a remarkable book. It was uh, published by the Wellcome Trust. So I'm in the middle of that, which is a non-fiction book um, and I'm absolutely loving it. So I've got it in my head that you probably like trashy novels. I don't know why I should think No, that. I never read trashy Do novels. Not. I did Inglit <laughs> at university. If I read trashy novels, I feel dirty. <laughs> Because I was, you know, I'm told you must always read great writing. I do read, um, I do love um, lighter great writing. You know, I'm not one for a thousand-page book where I have to work out each sentence. How do you switch off? I do watch trashy television. So I knew there was something trashy trashy, about you. <laughs> trashy television. That's what like they're cooking. What? Oh, I watch anything. I watch Casualty, you know. Oh, I hate that. Yeah, I do. I, I, I don't watch soap operas so much. I love Good Wife, uh, this American um, series. Um, and but I do watch trash on television. It just. But I love cooking. I switch off. And you're a very good cook. I'm a very good cook. Because you cook all the sorts of things that I normally would turn my nose up at. But actually, when I eat them, cook. I love them. I think I missed my vocation. <laughs> <laughs> I could have been a well, really rich Indian restaurant owner by now. Instead, I'm here. Well, it's still time. <laughs> <laughs> I did try, actually, two years ago. It's too tiring now. Let's just reprise the title of your book. It's called Exotic England, The Making of a Curious Nation. It's by Portobello Books. It's available on the Politico's website at politicos.co.uk, along with Yasmin's other book, Refusing the Veil, um, which has actually done really well. So we're all very pleased about that. Yasmin, thank you very much indeed.